My daughter, Paniyota, recently recommended to me an extremely difficult book to read, a New York Times bestseller entitled Spilled Milk, which gives the reader a glimpse into the world of child and physical abuse. This must-read book offers an awareness of what happens to victims, as well as what happens to the entire family system, the perpetrator, and the larger community around such a traumatic experience. The protagonist of the book was sexually abused and raped from a very young age by her father, while her siblings were physically abused. And even though the protagonist thought she was protecting her siblings by not speaking up and allowing her father to abuse her, she later learned that even her siblings endured sexual abuse as well. The mother, meanwhile, was oblivious to the horrible ordeal her four children suffered as she focused only on her own world of pain and suffering through pain med addiction. Even the outside world surrounding these suffering children, from school teachers and administrators to the kids' peers and their parents and even relatives, all seemed blind or chose to remain unaware of the environment of suffering and distress afflicting these children. Eventually, the young girl found strength when she was 16 years old to reveal her harrowing reality. Despite extreme feelings of shame and guilt she held, and despite feeling more like the perpetrator than the victim herself at times. After coming forward, she had to deal then with our country's dysfunctional legal system, which prolonged the trial of her father for two years, forcing this young teen to repeat, repeatedly describe her horrible experience to complete strangers and law officials whom she feared, each time making her want to backtrack her revelation. After two years of the judicial system, the jury ends up exonerating the father, and only after an appeal in a second trial was he convicted. She finally felt safe. I highly recommend everyone to read this book, Spilled Milk, simply to make us more aware of the suffering of people all around us, often the hidden suffering. One of the many lessons I took away from this book was that despite all this young child endured, she was able to hide from many people her disturbing reality by being an honor roll student, a cheerleader, and someone who others looked at and thought, oh, her life is all together. She was the overachiever in her family and society despite her deep wounds. Thank God she eventually found certain adults whom she deeply trusted and who gradually encouraged her to reveal her dark secrets. Through intense counseling, through continuous support and encouragement, and through unconditional love, she found a path of healing that was slow, painful, and difficult. Her siblings and mother, meanwhile, didn't accept the arduous path of healing and chose instead, whether consciously or unconsciously, to continue in paths of self-destruction and self-hatred through their addictions, their violent behavior, and their dysfunctional relationships. Too often, society would then judge her siblings 
who were deeply wounded and hurting in traumatic ways themselves. Society would simply judge them and condemn their self-destructive behavior instead of trying to understand the roots of their brokenness and instead of offering some path of help and healing. Reading this book and then reflecting on an, an enlightening article by Dr. Pia Sophia Chaudhary, I realized that talking about this book might be an appropriate way to reflect on the life of St. Mary of Egypt, whom we remember today on the fifth Sunday of our Great Lenten journey. The typical way we hear about the life of St. Mary, the sixth century saint, relates to how she, at the young age of only 12 years old, entered a life of utter depravity with her sexual desires, not simply as a prostitute, but more so as a sex addict who delighted in freely engaging in sexual exploits with any men whom she could ensnare in her immorality. This life of utter decadence continued for 17 years until one day when she saw a crowd of people traveling from the city of Alexandria on pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of the Holy Cross. She paid passage to travel with the crowd by offering her body to whomever wanted it. When she finally arrived in the Holy Lands and tried to enter the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, an invisible force kept her outside of the Church. In despair, she sat outside the Church, deeply mourning her sinful life and calling on the Theotokos to allow her to venerate the precious cross of Christ. She was pierced with such sincere repentance as she promised to change her life that she was able to then enter the church and venerate the Holy Cross. This unusual experience led her to flee into the desert where she spent the next 47 years tormented by many desires and passions until she overcame her temptations and discovered peace with God. At the end of her life, she providentially meets Father Zosimos, with whom she shared her life story and who ended up giving her Holy Communion and burying her body after she died. And he's the one who ended up sharing her life story to the church so that all future generations could be inspired by St. Mary. Well, the beautiful article I read by Dr. Chidari was entitled Depth Psychology and the Courage of St. Mary of Egypt. And in this article, he noted what is often lifted up in commentaries on the story is the willing sinfulness of Mary, the stunning and absolute nature of her repentance, and then her courageous ascetic struggle in the wilderness. But Dr. Chaudhary questions and says, I wonder about what led her into her original state of sin. What occurred in Mary's childhood to bring her to a place of leaving home at the age of 12, to move into a big city all by herself? Was she a social outcast? Was she abused? Did she have family? What sense of worth did she live with? What was she looking for in her promiscuous behavior? And was her physical desire knotted up in a distorted search for a love and intimacy she had never known? Instead of reading the life of St. Mary in a simple manner, seeing her as a sinful woman who deeply repented, these questions challenge us to reflect in a deeper way into the life of this beloved saint, 
and maybe realize that she possibly came from a traumatic past. As we reflect on her excessive life of sin and her new life through repentance in Christ, I'm sure we could all think about the lives of people we know who may have suffered from past trauma. And maybe we can take care, not simply to reject people who are broken, to not reject them because of their sinful, self-destructive, ongoing behavior. But is there a way that we can connect with them, create a space that they could feel comfortable to share and to guide them, to walk with them on a path of healing and hope? When we see people in the midst of self-destructive behavior that pulls down both themselves and others, can we see beyond their outward sinfulness and focus not on their inner broken relationships, not on their insecurities and their shame and their self-hatred, but instead, can we see their God-given beauty hidden deep within their soul? Just as Mary of Egypt revealed a moment of grace when she wanted to encounter God, so too do all individuals, no matter how prodigal and wicked their life may appear. Everyone can discover moments of grace where we want to encounter a God who offers hope and healing, where we discover a loving God who desires to offer new life. We should look at St. Mary's story not as one where she went to Jerusalem and tried to enter the church of the Holy Sepulchre simply by chance, but we should see that the Spirit of God was within her despite all her years of sinfulness, and God was calling her back to him. Dr. Chidari in her article goes on to explain, if we emphasize only purity and impurity in the story of St. Mary, we may miss the actual breathtaking beauty of what can and actually does happen when our own small realities encounter the greater reality. Such an encounter with truth, with God, is the beginning of hope. Not because a sinner can be saved in a moralistic trope, but because an inner space opens up in the person that can change their entire existence, their whole experience of the world. It is the beginning of freedom, inextricably bound up in the experience of love. Once a different way has been glimpsed and even more fully experienced, an all-out revolution begins. This makes St. Mary's story all the more moving, not just as an icon of repentance in the way we often hear that word, but an icon of love breaking through deeply patterned behaviors of trauma and holding open the door to a different way. One St. Mary would have to fight body and soul, tooth and nail, to hold on to. Her experiences of God must have been very, very strong to affect such a radical metania, a radical change in repentance, and then sustain her for the ensuing battle with all the demons and complexes which would still be there in her psyche. St. Mary's life presents such a relevant message for many people today. 
Yes, it teaches us about sin and repentance, but much more, it's a moving story, a miraculous story, an utterly harrowing story about deep healing of despair and isolation, about an encounter with true love, and about the lifelong struggle that such an an initiatory encounter may set off in each of us as we strive to become who we were born to be, creatures of desire made for communion with God and with each other. St. Mary, pray for us. The joy of the Lord is my strength. Can everyone say this beautiful scripture verse from the prophet Nehemiah together? The joy of the Lord is my strength. What is this joy of the Lord? And how can we carry such joy throughout our lives? Joy is not simply a feeling of happiness and pleasure that we can discover on our own, but it's a sacred gift we receive from a vibrant, healthy faith through a living relationship with the source of all joy, Jesus Christ himself. Divine joy is not simply a fleeting, sentimental feeling that comes and goes depending on our exterior circumstances, but it's a deep inner security in God, knowing that he is always with us and we are never alone, even in the midst of whatever darkness the world may bring. It is knowing that God is ultimately in control, even when life seems like a mystery and things happen around us we don't understand and where we may not feel his loving and comforting presence. It is knowing that God is victorious and despite any passion and crucifixion that may await us, the resurrection will come. As we say in one of our morning prayers, through the cross, joy has come into all the world. Divine joy is the assurance and contentment, realizing that God is with us, and if we stay with him, regardless of our circumstances or the circumstances that surround us, that inner joy of happiness in our soul and delight in our heart will never go away. Today, on Palm Sunday, when we relive Christ's triumphant entry into Jerusalem, and we can sense the joy that the crowds expressed, Hosanna to God in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. Hosanna is an expression of praise, adoration, and joy that the crowds consciously used to welcome Jesus into the holy city. They may have heard about this prophet from Nazareth, who was a wonder worker, and his most recent unbelievable miracle was raising a man back to life who had been in a tomb four days. Some of them surely heard his teachings and realized this was a man who preached with divine authority, in a way quite different from the religious leaders of his day, fulfilling his teaching with his life of love. The messianic dreams of a leader coming to guide Israel back to freedom and political greatness, even ushering in the messianic era of peace, justice, prosperity, and goodness was surely a part of this crowd's dreams, which seemed like blasphemy to the Pharisees and their religious leaders. Yet when they told Jesus to silence the crowd from using such dangerous, politically charged phrases, Christ simply responded, Out of the mouths of babes and infants comes perfect praise. I tell you that if these should keep silent, 
the stones themselves would immediately call out. <laughs> the crowds not only expressed, but deeply felt a sense of deep joy at the coming of Christ. They believed he would change their reality and fill them with happiness in this present life and in the messianic age. Yet what happened? How did the joy and hope of Palm Sunday quickly turn into the darkness and horror of Holy Thursday and Good Friday, which led the people to such despair and even anger? Did the joy and hope of the crowds dissipate so quickly because their joy was superficial? Or maybe because they didn't understand what true divine joy is. Maybe this is the reason why we read St. Paul's letter to the Philippians in conjunction with the gospel reading of Palm Sunday. St. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. This writing of St. Paul to the Christians in Philippi is a very small letter in the New Testament. And it's often called the letter of joy because Paul uses the term joy or rejoice 18 times in four chapters. What makes this letter all the more shocking, though, is that the apostle wrote this letter when he himself languished in prison, uncertain about his future. He wrote to Christians who faced dangerous persecution in the first century. Yet despite these uncertain realities, St. Paul expressed deep rooted joy in God and revealed how he found peaceful contentment despite whatever difficulties he faced in life. The divine joy he discovered was not a fleeting feeling depending on outer circumstances, but it was a fun foundational gift of God directing his entire life. How did Paul feel the joy of the Lord even though his future was uncertain and he faced possible martyrdom? And how could he encourage the Christians in Philippi to rejoice in the Lord even though they faced persecution? Well, Paul discovered the secret of life in Christ, which means, and he said this to the Philippians, it means we should remember that the Lord is near us. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made to known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Gratitude and prayer, together with an assurance that God is near, replaces all anxiety and worry, regardless of what circumstances we face. St. Paul goes on to confess, I've learned that in whatever state I am to be content. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I've learned the secret of being content. For in all things, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Possessing divine joy does not mean our joy will not be tested. The inner joy that comes with the knowledge and experience of God surely does not mean that we will not face difficulties, dark and confusing days ahead, where we may not feel the presence of God. We can just look at this Passion Week. We begin today on Palm Sunday. The crowds express thrilling joy and hope, yet this joy will be tested in the following days when we enter into the passion of our Lord. For too many people, they get lost in the darkness of betrayal, rejection, denial, abandonment, pain, and what appears to be the victory of darkness and evil. 
We even hear the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As an anguished prayer. Yet in the midst of such utter darkness and the mystery of suffering and death itself, joy prevails. As the prayer that I stated earlier says, through the cross, joy has come into all the world. For those who faithfully stay with the Lord, divine joy can never be extinguished by any darkness, but it is always brilliantly preserved. The risen Christ Jesus affirms that nothing can take away the joy of the Lord that is within us. This joy will always prevail over whatever darkness we face in the world, precisely because he promised that I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. St. Paul reminds us, the Lord is near. Do not worry, but pray with thanksgiving, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will fill your hearts. Learn to be content in all circumstances, for in Christ we can do all things. One of the greatest accusations ever made against Christians was made by the influential French philosopher and atheist Friedrich Nietzsche when he stated that Christianity has no joy, that Christianity is a joyless religion. Now, maybe that's what he experienced in France in his lifetime. And he seems to accuse Christians of believing in God, but not enjoying life. Yet Alexander Schmemann responds to this by saying, Christianity without joy is incomprehensible. It is only as joy that the church was victorious over the world throughout the ages. Thus, as we celebrate Palm Sunday today and Christ's triumphant entry of joy into Jerusalem, and as we prepare to journey in Holy Week through the darkness and evil of the passion of Christ, let us learn an important lesson for our own lives. Divine joy will never depend on whatever circumstances we face in life. Divine joy is something we carry deep within that no exterior trial can ever eliminate. Divine joy comes from a living and dynamic relationship we have with the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Never let any darkness, any challenge, any sorrow make us forget the joy of the risen Christ. The joy of the Lord is my strength.